Hey guys and girls, welcome to another episode of Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. I'm your host, Roman Tagal, and by now you should hopefully know who I am. I wanted to start today's episode by saying a big thank you to you for listening to the show. And if you could do me one favor today, that would be simply go onto the app store and give us a five-star rating, or if that's too much effort, just send this episode or share this episode with a colleague or industry contact, just because we're trying to uh, spread the the news, if you like, about the podcast and get it into the hands and ears of, of more people in the industry uh, as we get, you know, continue to get really positive feedback. So, Today's episode, I'm going to be talking about the pharma and biotech supply chain with Peter Bigelow, who's president at Excel Strategic Consulting. Peter is a very well-respected industry leader, having spent 25 years in the global pharmaceutical manufacturing space. He was at Wyeth and then Pfizer for the best part of 15 years before becoming the interim CEO and president of North America for Patheon. He since moved into management consulting before establishing his own firm in 2014. Listen out for Pete's experience at Wyeth and then Pfizer, and then the contrast of his time at Pathian. It's really quite fascinating to see the difference between uh, you know being that sponsor side and the capacity and finance and resource that you have, uh, I suppose, access to, to then being kind of on a CDMO side, albeit one of the biggest in the world, uh, and the speed of decision-making and I suppose the speed of being on that side of the fence. Pete also talks uh, very openly about the challenges uh, they had in terms of adding development to the existing manufacturing infrastructure, which is really uh, quite fascinating. Uh, Listen out for uh, Pete talking about the kind of key buying criteria that emerging pharma considers uh, when choosing a CDMO. This is really quite fascinating um, in terms of particularly at the phase two, phase three stage of scale up uh, and what the most important things are for a buyer at that stage. Uh, And other things to look out for, we had a really interesting discussion about the kind of, I suppose, paradigm of consolidation in the market, but yet increasing fragmentation uh, in the outsourcing space due to the continued growth and just explosion of technology and new players coming on to the scene. Some really nice stuff about Pete talking about, uh, you know, the art of listening uh, and being a lifetime learner, which as you know, are things that I massively subscribed to. And a final thing was just a really interesting thing towards the end when we talk about uh, whether localization and regionalization of supply chains will become uh, more important to drug development companies going forward. I really enjoyed my conversation with Pete. He's a really terrific guy and uh, it's got amazing experience. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hey, Peter, welcome to the show. Hey Roman, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. It's nice to nice to speak to you again today, and uh, I'm really excited to obviously have you on our molecule to market. Pete, a lot of people that will be listening will probably have come across you at some point in the last 25 years or so in this sector. But for those that um, don't know you, um, do you mind giving a bit of an overview of your background, uh, how you got into the industry, and just your journey today to to where you are today? Sure, happy to. 
Thank you, and thanks for having me today. It's a pleasure to talk to you and to talk to your audience. Thank you. Um, I, I, I was like, like many of us in the pharmaceutical services business. I started my career in the pharmaceutical, you know, pharmaceutical, the research-based pharmaceutical business, and I uh, spent 14 years with SmithKline, uh, which became GlaxoSmithKline after I left, and I spent 14 years with Wyeth. And Wyeth was acquired by Pfizer in 2009, and I left as part of that, that acquisition. Uh, so I spent 28 years in, in big pharma. Um, when I left um, Wyeth, um, I joined, uh, I, I moved into the pharmaceutical services world and joined Patheon. And I served as Patheon's um, president of their North America division and, and served for a while as the CEO at Patheon. So I made that very um, dramatic transition from uh, being a uh, working for a research-based large company to working for a, a company providing services and uh, in both the development and manufacturing side for the pharmaceutical business. Um, I, I, I've spent uh, a few years at Patheon and then uh, ran a, a generics company for about a year and a half called Qualitest, which is a division of Endo Pharmaceuticals. And uh, short, shortly after that formed uh, uh, my consulting business, which is called XL Strategic Consulting. And um, we are um, a few industry veterans working on a variety of projects. We work a lot with uh, startup pharmaceutical companies. We work with, with uh, doing outsourcing of products and working with CDMOs and and, and I personally get a lot involved quite a bit in, in M&A work. So that's my background. Thanks, Peter. And uh, I've got lots of follow-up questions and I will get to your current business and, and what you guys do, but I'd love to talk a little bit more about your time at Pfizer and, and, and Wyeth. And if I, if my research is correct, you spent about uh, 15 years or so at Wyeth and Pfizer. So, how how was that journey and and were you always in manufacturing was that always your kind of role or did you kind of evolve into into manufacturing yeah i uh, when i left uh, smith klein i joined wyeth as the vp of engineering so we had a capital engineering group building plants and research facilities and distribution centers and things like that around the world a uh, pretty large capital budget, and uh, my group kind of managed all that, the uh, design work, the process engineering, and the construction work um, for, for Wyeth. Um, I did that for a couple of years and moved in from there into manufacturing, where I ran uh, the injectables plants for Wyeth for a while. I ran the solid dosage plants. Um, we had a separate consumer products division. I ran the consumer product manufacturing plants. We have products like Advil and Centrum Vitamins, Robitussin, now um, part of the GSK Pfizer joint venture. Um, so uh, I, I moved pretty quickly uh, into, into operations. I had some responsibilities for development and, uh, and supply chain. Um, and uh, we had, you know, a lot of people in manufacturing at, at Wyeth. We had a lot of plants. We made a lot of products, a uh, wide variety of, of um, of products like vaccines and solid dosage and injectables and biotechnology products. So uh, it was great, uh, great experience for me. I, I was there for 14 years at Wyeth and uh, we went from 
you know, we, we really changed the culture of the company in those 14 years. Uh, we went from a company that had a lot of kind of me too products and, you know, not a very exciting company to one that introduced a lot of new products and uh, we're, we're very um, active in, you know, biologicals and biotechnology and really had a great vaccine business and uh, really kind of reshaped the company. And that's why we were attractive to Pfizer and, and we were eventually acquired by them. And I wanted to uh, ask you specifically about your experience uh, in a very high profile role at Patheon uh, as you know, president of North America, I believe, and then interim CEO uh, for a short period as well. So, and, and Pythian, I don't think we're probably, and obviously part of Thermo now, was still a significant player when you worked there, but I'm, I'm really curious to hear of your time working there in, and I suppose being leading, uh, you know, such a reputable global CDMO like, uh, like Pythian at that time, how, how was that experience and how, how was it being on the other side of the fence? You know, you had, <laughs> you know, more than a decade as the client. Uh, yeah, I'm really interested to know what it was like being the service provider, especially at a business like Patheon. Yeah, great, great questions. And, you know, so, so Patheon um, at the time was one of the largest CDMOs, I guess, Talent and Patheon as they are today, uh, were very significant players then. But it was a much more fragmented market, right? So, um, you know, a lot of the consolidation that's happened in the last 10 years hadn't happened yet. And, um, you know, so, so it was a company that was, um, you know, struggling in some ways in terms of uh, not having the critical mass to be able to, you know, um, do everything they wanted to do. So uh, we were we were publicly traded at the time, and uh, um, you know, but, but still really lacked the critical mass we needed to kind of move in some of the areas we wanted to move move quickly into. Um, so so uh, you know, it was, it was a pretty critical time for Paytm. Uh, they had made a uh, a large uh, acquisition before I got there, uh, a company called Mova in Puerto Rico. And um, some of the um, some some of that business ended to be ended up being a drag on the Patheon business. So some of you know there, there was a lot of change changes and transition that needed to be made. We had some great people. Um, we we were able to you know really figure out some things like like building a really really strong pharmaceutical development services business. You know that on the development side, uh, we we really we really. Um, that was probably the one of the most important things for, for Patheon in those days is is really building that development business, which which ended up being a feeder, a really important feeder into the commercial manufacturing business. Problem is that doesn't happen overnight. It's a real investment, and uh, you might you might get a relatively small contract today to do phase two clinical trial material, but six years from there from that day, uh, it may be a really big, important contract. And I think a lot of that has, uh, has, has really come to help Patheon. Um, and they've also, they also made some really smart acquisitions and, you know, kind of brought that business together uh, with, uh, uh, you know, with a, with a real full service offering and, and certainly the, the Thermo uh, acquisition has really given them, you know, some capital and, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of really great management and 
um, you know, so they're doing quite well. Um, you know, I, I, I did make that jump from a, from a um, operating company to a services company, and, and that's a pretty big leap. I was very familiar um, at Wyeth with how the system worked because we were, you know, probably about 30% of our products at Wyeth were made by CMOs. Um, so we worked extensively with, with the CMO community, um, but as a buyer of services, not as a provider. And there's a real, you know, it's, it's a, as, as everybody I'm sure on this call realizes, there's a real difference to being a service provider than a consumer of services. And, uh, you know, it was a real learning curve for me, a uh, really important one. And I talk to a lot of CMOs these days, uh, those that like acquire facilities from, from big pharma or, you know, have bring on people that have worked in big pharma that, you know, it's really important to be deliberate how, how we manage that culture change because it's, it's not a, you know, it's not something that comes without a, without a learning curve. And, uh, you know, I've seen some companies do it really well and, and some companies, you know, kind of struggle with it. Peter, if you don't mind me asking, what when you arrived at Paytheon, what were some of the misconceptions, maybe misconceptions or, or um, perceptions you had of a CDMO business that were that were turned upside down when you were on the other side of the fence, if that makes sense, you know, so something that yeah. you believed whilst you were at the, you know, on the sponsor side and when you turned up to Paytheon and seeing things from that side thought, actually, I didn't realize this or, uh, you know, I never, I never thought about that. It'd be really to get your interest in, cause you've, you're kind of that classic, you know, um, poacher turned gamekeeper. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I'm, yeah, I'm really interested to know what, what it's like making that jump. Yeah. Well, the, you know, I, I think it was, you know, the biggest surprise and I'm not so sure it was as much a surprise as, as, as it was just, kind of an awakening as I got there because I, you know, I suspected this would happen, but the, you know, the, the types of resources available to you in big pharma is totally different than coming to work for a, uh, you know, a CMO that, um, you know, if, if, if we needed legal, legal support at, at Wyeth, there was, you know, a department of 20 I could turn to if, if we needed data, we could get that data. If we needed, you know, capital, you know, the amount of capital we spent on, on our facilities at a, at a big pharma uh, environment versus, you know, a company like Patheon was, was just a order of magnitude different. And, um, you know, so, so that was, I think that's one of the biggest learnings is, you know, um, you know, thinking, well, boy, I, I need some help with this. And, there weren't always, you know, the, the big departments that I was used to that I could go to to get help. Um, the other thing was, um, you know, we had a real consensus building environment at Wyeth, right? And uh, sometimes you'd have a room of third, filled with 30 people to make a decision and you'd make a decision that maybe nobody would have come up with themselves, but they could all live with. Mm -hmm. you know? And, uh, and, when I first got to Patheon, I kept looking for that con conference room with 30 seats and there wasn't one, you know, people would come to me and say, you know, Peter, we need to make a decision about this proposal we're putting in this project we're doing this person we're going to hire, 
you know, this, you know, quarterly results. And, you know, they, they wanted me to make a decision. And that was, uh, that was, that was a lot different. Um, and you feel a little bit like you're, you're out on a, on a limb, but it's pretty exhilarating too, after all those years of, you know, kind of making group of having group think to being a lot more um, of a decision maker and having to, to be a lot more entrepreneurial. Yeah, I imagine that's a fascinating um, contrast between, as you said there, Peter, the kind of access to expertise and capital and then almost yeah. being able to yeah. make decisions on the fly and get things moving very quickly yeah. without having to consult 20, 20 other people. And you, you talked a little bit about um, there was an existing manufacturing setup and you'd acquired more manufacturing facilities at Paytheon and then you started adding the development expertise. And I've seen a lot of smaller CDMOs. We've had many guests actually on the, on the podcast that have talked through the other journey, which is, you know, you build up uh, in say a, a development expertise and then a clinical manufacturing expertise, and then you kind of evolve into commercial manufacturing. But it sounds at Paytheon that it kind of happened the other way where you are that kind of commercial big manufacturing company. And then you effectively dovetailed that development capability if I've understood yes. that correctly, what what were some of the challenges around um, dealing with development projects versus manufacturing? I'm because you know there are different types of business, and you know the the market is full of CDMOs these days. But you know this was ten years ago, and I mean I can't remember if CDMO was a term there probably was, but you effectively had a lot of CROs and you had CMOs, and then CDMO turned up, and so I'm just interested to know. What, what were some of the, uh, the kind of cultural shifts that had to be made, the mindset changes of going from, you know, I imagined forecastable revenue to like, wow, these projects are coming in and out and there is no, <laughs> there's no, it's hard yeah. to predict. I, I'm guessing was that, was that some of the challenge? It was, it was a, a big part of the challenge. And, um, and, and before I got to Patheon, there was a, you know, a, a development organization. So we didn't start from scratch, but we, we certainly, um, you know, kind of built it out. And, uh, you know, a, f a few things come to mind to, you know, maybe help hone in on your question, um, which is, you know, the, 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 the sales process is a lot different for the, on the development side. And you alluded to it that, you know, the contracts are smaller. They tend to be, be um, you know, much shorter in duration. And, uh, but, but it's a very good entry point with a lot of companies, right? Is to really, you know, um, understand their development needs, meet their development needs. Um, then, you know, it becomes a, a pretty easy decision for them to, you know, to stay with you for commercial, um, for commercial production. And, um, so, so we really shifted the emphasis of our sales team. To, to emphasize, to really emphasize the development side of the business more than the manufacturing side of the business. Um, so, so that was a learning for, for us to, to really sell hard on the, on the development side. Even though we had these big manufacturing plants, uh, we just realized that the future of those plants was really dependent on, on this, this development business we did. And one of the other things we learned was, you know, you might start off with just a small contract with somebody to do some development work, some formulation work, maybe some analytical testing. And, and then, then that builds, you know, as, as they move along their development cycle, 
So, um, so, so getting that first contract and doing a good job with it was really critical because um, eventually, once you added up all the work you did for that client, it ended up being a lot of work and, and uh, a lot of value. And uh, so, so one of the things we had to learn, and I, I talked to a lot of companies about this, is is to kind of how to how to um, kind of price out your work and how to how to um, uh, communicate with your client in such a way that <clears throat> that you're really clear on what's that you both agree what the scope is, and then as the scope evolves, you're very clear on what's ad ad additional. And then you make decisions about that jointly before you actually start doing the work. So one of the problems we had is we, we, we just didn't have a really good change control system and we weren't communicating that well with our customers. And, and we got to where there was, you know, conflicts where we thought that was in the scope. No, that was never in the scope. And, you know, so we, you know, we really started to drive for that clarity and, 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 and the, the customers really appreciated it. Um, you know, it, it caused everybody to have more of a discipline around that business, uh, but it really served us well in the long run. Um, yeah. One of the things we discovered is there was a lot of, you know, our, our development folks who wanted to bend over backwards to help clients were, were kind of doing more than they had originally agreed to do without having that discipline of sitting down with the customer and reviewing the scope. And, and we were like uh, losing significant margin on a lot of products just because of not having a lot of projects because of not having that discipline. So that ended up being a really important learning for us. And in the end, the customers really appreciated that, that uh, grasp of clarity. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. I really appreciate your perspective on that because I think it's such an interesting um, challenge to have for a business. And I wanted to kind of fast forward. Obviously, we've talked about your time at Pfizer and Pythian, and then you kind of ended up going into more down the management consulting route and, and obviously has ultimately led to you setting up your own business in 2014. So I'm curious to know what that trigger point was or what happened at that point that made you think, hey, I'm going to do my own thing because you've almost gone from that corporate, big corporate um, career to obviously service provider at still a reasonable scale to obviously kind of more and more narrow and more and more, uh, I suppose, smaller as well. So I'm just interested to know what, what that trigger point was. And, and I'd love it if you could give the listeners a bit of an overview of, of what your business uh, actually does and what types of clients that you work with uh, yeah. today. Yeah, great. Yeah, so so let me, I'll, I'll explain the business first and then talk a little bit about why I'm doing it and how I got into it, if that if that's okay. Yeah, sure. Um, so, so um, Excel is a, a you know relatively small consulting company. Most of the people that work for the firm are, if not all, I guess not all, but most of the people are are really industry veterans um, and not really industry consultants. So um, we don't come out of the consulting. Um, environment we come out of working for you know companies uh like the ones i've worked for 
And uh, so, so we can bring a, you know, real kind of operator's perspective, you know, we can go into a manufacturing plant pretty quickly, you know, understand what's working and what isn't. We can, uh, you know, kind of help companies kind of partner with, with CMOs or service providers pretty quickly because, you know, we, we know who's good at, at doing the types of things they're doing. Um, so I, I think, you know, it's just, kind of been a really nice thing to be able to, you know, kind of gain all that experience uh, over the years and then use that experience to, um, you know, to help other companies kind of uh, benefit from it. Uh, so we really work in, in three, uh, three verticals. One is um, in the development side and we work for a number of startup pharmaceutical companies that are, you know, somewhere between you know, phase two and launch, uh, where we help bridge them from where they're a relatively small company focused on, on medical clinical outcomes to where they're going to have to be large enough and significant enough to, um, to launch a product and, you know, how do they get there? And I've done a lot of things personally, like, you know, uh, do organizational development and, you know, do hiring for, for companies to that, and a need to move towards uh, more of a commercial organization. So we're working for a number of companies in that vertical. We also do, out, we have an outsourcing vertical where we help companies select partners. And, and we also work with a number of CDMOs to help them do some strategic planning or, you know, help them kind of uh, work through some of the, you know, issues and, and opportunities in their business. And the third vertical is really a lot of general supply chain projects where we do some operational excellence, we do some selections of, you know, 3PLs, we help companies figure things out, uh, we do risk assessments. Um, like I said earlier, I, I get involved with, uh, you know, a lot of uh, advising on, on M&A projects. So, so those are really the verticals we work in. Um, you know, the reason, you know, it's, it's just from a you know, a lot of ways it's, it's worked out great for me. It's given me an opportunity to, to see a lot of different companies instead of working for one company. It's, it's given me a chance to see things from different perspectives, representing a sponsor company and, and also representing a, a services company. Um, it's got me to, to see and advise a lot on, on M&A stuff. And so, um, you know, having had a long career and one where I've, you know, was um, usually working for one company and really kind of focused on the objectives of that company. It's been uh, really eye-opening and incredibly interesting to now, you know, be working for a bunch of different companies, some of which, you know, my experience is really useful to them to draw upon. And, um, you know, I've met some fabulous people and, you know, continue to kind of learn something every day. Well, that's uh, that's really wonderful to hear the journey that you've that you've been on, and I can, you can kind of hear the passion and uh, satisfaction in your voice of your obviously running your own business and the, I suppose the variety and flexibility that 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 that's given you, Peter. And you mentioned, and I think for you know for our listeners, many of which who work in the contract services sector. I'd be really interested to get your perspective and thoughts on those drug sponsors that are scaling up for phase two and potentially 
evaluating CDMO partners. What for you know, so for some of our listeners at the who you know who offer services at that particular phase, what is it that buyers are looking for, or what are the most important criteria types? Is it and actually, you know, given your experience in the industry, Peter, has that evolved as well? You know, is it still very much say capabilities and location and you know driven rather than I suppose I'm sure price is obviously a factor like it always is, but I'm just interested to know whether or not you're seeing uh, slightly evolved, newer, different buyer decisions, especially at that phase two uh, pivot point where the scale and the investment gets a bit chunkier, I suspect. Sure, sure. So, so there's, there's, there's a bunch of different buyers out there, but the ones you're, you're talking about people, you know, companies that have a new chemical entity or maybe a, a 505 B2, something that's, that's different. And, you know, it's going to have some intellectual property attached to it. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're an interesting group of companies and, um, you know, I, I, there's uh, some, some good data out there. I think Jim Miller and some others have, have published some data, but it's something like 50% in the last three years, 50% of the new products that have been approved and launched by the pharmaceutical industry in the U.S. have been produced and launched by CDMOs. So, you know, that 10 years ago, that wouldn't have been the case. Um, and I think it's a real testimonial to the, the breadth and scale of the CDMO business that, um, that, that the, the large companies aren't necessarily saying we've got to do this in-house to do it right. They're, they're saying just the opposite, that there's, there's companies that specialize in doing this. Let's go find them and let's have them, you know, take our family jewels and, and launch them. So. Um, you know, I'm really proud of that fact because I, I think it's really, um, you know, it's been such a, um, you know, industry that's that's matured and and has you know really gained capability and, and gained um, you know, critical mass and gained the trust of, of the industry. Um, having said that, you know, I, I think this, what I see as the most important thing that. Um, that companies in phase two or phase three are looking for is reliability. Um, they're looking for companies that can come in, they can understand your needs, they can bring forth the right capabilities, and they can do it uh, on the timeline that's best for the sponsor company. And, uh, you know, of course, everybody, you know, goes out with proposals and they want pricing and they talk about pricing and, you know, they make some decisions around pricing, but many, most of the companies that I uh, deal with that are that have new products that are going to market are, are not as sensitive to price, but they are very sensitive to working with somebody who can provide the right level of services and, and meet their timelines and be reliable. That's uh, that's really interesting uh, and insightful information, Peter, especially around that kind of reliability uh, aspect. And um, and I'm I, I mean I'm gonna kind of follow up and how, <laughs> if you're a CDMO, how do you demonstrate reliability? I'm guessing whatever way you look at it, the buyer and the sponsor is gonna uh, you know roll the dice with whoever the CDMO partner is. But I'm just interested to know what 
what types of, uh, you know, is it is it just track record? Is it is it case studies? Is it you know references? What how how does how does CDMO demonstrate uh, reliability without yeah you know, prior to yeah. actually doing <laughs> doing the doing the job? Yeah, and it's you know it's all of that, right? You know, it's it's reputation, and you know how does how do you get the right reputation? You get it by having good references and, you know, really good, you know, quality record with, with ministries of health are, is really important. Um, you know, uh, just uh, being able to demonstrate your capabilities, um, you know, responding to, you know, inquiries and, uh, you know, proposals and things like that very quickly. Um, you know, just being really seen as a, you know, as, as being very responsive, and having the right level of quality and, um, you know, understanding the, the needs of the project uh, or, or the client um, is, is really important. But it's, it's, it's a lot of small things go into it. Right? It's a lot of, you know, and it takes time. And, you know, some, some things can really set companies back, right? Like a big quality issue and, and things like that. If, you know, if, if that, you know, I, I've seen companies be haunted by, you know, a quality issue in one of their plants 10 years ago, you know, and, and, you know, clients will bring that up, you know, mm. um, or, you know, you know, as you know, there, there's, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of memory and, and there's, a, you know, people tend to stay in this industry for a long time and a lot of people know each other. Um, so, you know, I, I hear it a lot of times where, somebody recalls some incident that happened years ago and that's the reason they don't want them on the bidders list. So, yeah. you know, there's, you know, a negative can really hurt you. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, reputations are, are important to, to develop and it's one step at a time. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just kind of putting one foot in front of the other and just, mm -hmm. just really executing and, and doing the right thing and, and having people that are, really capable and, um, and care and, uh, mm -hmm. are, are, are service oriented. Yeah. I mean, I'm, it's such an interesting point that Peter, you know, and you know, obviously, as you know, I, my day job is, is running a, a marketing company and, you know, the amount of times I've said to clients over the year, you know, that, you know, you know, what's the, they'll often ask, you know, what's the best marketing trick or tactic or tool, whatever it is. And I'm like, the most important thing in the world is to deliver a good service as to consistently deliver a good service and have a strong reputation. You, yeah. you know, you can have all the fancy marketing in the world that you want, but if you, you know, if you don't deliver on whatever that marketing promise says, then there's a natural disappointment there. But also, as you say, you know, there are sites and companies in this sector that had bad quality inspections a decade ago. And, and as you're right, you know, it's like it tarnishes them for a long time yeah. and it takes, yeah. and it takes a, it takes a hell of an effort to, to overcome that. So I think that really, uh, you know, and just, I suppose for our listener, you know, just illustrates the importance of ensuring a culture of quality and making sure that you never uh, jeopardize yeah. Uh, yeah. that part of your business because it's just, you know, it can make and break your business. Yeah. And Peter, right, right at the start of the conversation, I made a note because you talked about, the market being more fragmented a, a decade ago. And you've also obviously mentioned you do some M&A work today. Um, I would still class the contract services, but particularly the CDMO market is still 
I would say relatively fragmented. Obviously, there's been a a, a lot of MA. So would you are you expecting to see more consolidation in the future and and also kind of linked to that there's been obviously in the uh, in the last year or so with covid there's been a lot of new cdmos popping up um it, it, i mean i've seen a few in the us in particular which is really surprising because you know the barriers to entry are normally funding but because of covid there's a lot of money in the industry at the minute that's coming from you know government etc cetera, etc cetera. so I was just interested to get your take on whether you still feel the industry is fragmented or will it continue to consolidate and also how do these uh yeah. how does that impact uh I suppose these new players coming into the sector as well and and any thoughts on that would be yeah would be great. Yeah, good. Yeah, it's it's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, you know, some of the big players have really gotten, you know, a bigger percentage of the market, you know, Atheon, Thermo, Catalan, uh, Bougie, Lanza, you know, they've become, they've become bigger players and they've really, you know, gotten some critical mass and they've gotten you know, really broad capabilities through acquisitions and organic growth. But also, you know, I'm, I'm amazed at all the new companies that are starting up, right? It's um, so, so it's still a very fragmented business compared to a lot of businesses. And, um, you know, compared to automobiles or something like that, it's very, very much fragmented. There's, you know, thousands of players, and there's a lot of new companies that are coming coming out. And, and um, you know, I, I think part of it is because, you know, there's so many different technologies in our business, and, and each technology is, you know, has a lot of, um, you know, a lot of you know, knowledge that needs to be built and it has a lot of facilities that need to be built around it. And, and that, you know, that causes, you know, some of this fragmentation itself, you know. I think a good example of that is the cell and gene therapy businesses that are developing today, right? There's, you know, a couple bigger players in that, but there's tons of small players. There's not enough capacity. Um, it's a new field. You're not finding people with 20 years of experience in cell and gene therapy. It's new equipment that needs to be put together in, in kind of, you know, customized facilities. So, so all of a sudden we're back where there's tons of smaller players developing a reputation around, you know, maybe one or two or a couple technologies. And, uh, you know, and they're, they're evolving as, you know, kind of the next wave of companies that are, there's going to be a lot of consolidation that goes on, um, mm -hmm. but there's a lot of growth too. And I, you know, so I think, I think we're in this situation where we'll continue to see consolidation. I think the bigger players will, will tend to get bigger, but there's going to be a, a, a point where they're going to have trouble, you know, just continuing to grow like they have through acquisition. And then I think we're, we're always going to see these smaller players start up and, you know, um, you know, be, be um, substantial and important companies in the industry. Mm, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. And and in one sense, it's exciting, right, Peter, for the sector because we're seeing continued growth. We're seeing new players coming onto the scene. You know, you said before the the maturing of the market. It's uh, it's an exciting place to be, and I, I certainly feel very grateful for being in the sector. And I am going to, we know we've got another five minutes or so left, Peter, and I'm going to come on to ask you about the sector and COVID and trends and, and other things from a, I suppose, a, 
a 30,000 feet perspective, but you've obviously had a, a really successful career um, in, you know, both in a corporate farmer on the CDMO side and obviously in your own consultancy business now, which is obviously uh, very, very successful. And what, what would you put, or what would you attribute that success to Peter that you've had in your career? Is there, is there a particular skill that you're good at, good at or something that you've worked on over the years that's enabled you to have a, a successful career? Uh, that's, that's, you're asking me to be reflective, which, which I'm not usually. <laughs> I'm asking you, I'm also asking you to big up yourself, <laughs> which is really uncomfortable, I suspect. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a couple things that, you know, people have told me, you know, one, I've always been an open door kind of person, right? If, if somebody has a perspective, I want to hear it. Um, and, you know, I, I think I listen well. And, uh, and because of that, I think I've learned things fairly quickly and kind of have some pretty good intuition about what works and what doesn't and what's a concern and what isn't. And uh, so, so I think, you know, the, the art of, of listening and, and learning and being a lifetime learner is important in my career. And, you know, another thing that, um, you know, I, I think I've always been conscious of is, you know, this business is filled with, you know, work in this business is filled with dramatic times, right? There's there's a lot that goes on that um, that are uh, you know big issues that have to be dealt with, and um, sometimes you you know you you just can't jump off a cliff. You've got to sit down. You've got to think things through. You got to get the smartest people in a room. You've got to really talk about things. You got to have a strategy. You know, you've got to move forward one step at a time. You've got to be willing to course correct. Um, and, you know, so I, I think being really, you know, strategic about how you go about your business and how you deal with the kind of, you know, um, changes and issues and hiccups and, and things that, that, that you know, um, come into your business every day is, is really important. And, uh, you know, I think companies that, have you know good leaders that that can really deal with all the curveballs that are thrown at us um, are, are really the ones that have been successful uh, in our in our industry yeah i think it's a, it's a terrific point there and you know that ability to be resilient and adapt to change is, is certainly an important one for for the sector and the, the last question i had for you peter was around the the kind of uh, we've obviously talked about fragmentation and M and A and consolidation, etc. Uh, any interesting things you're seeing from a trends perspective? Uh, probably with a uh, with a mention of of how COVID is impacting the industry, and uh, obviously at the time of recording, we're into the springtime and the sunshine's out on the east coast <laughs> as we're, we're moving towards a, a, a summer and hopefully a fun summer where. You know, certainly in the in the Western, you know, in, in the UK and in the US, and hopefully some of Europe will be coming out of lockdowns. And I, I, I'm just interested to get your thoughts on what the sector is going to look like after COVID. And uh, you know, from certainly from the interviews that I've carried out over the last year, the the, the life science space at large, but particularly the contract services sector, is has really um, has really performed well and demonstrated its value in the last year. But I'm interested in your thoughts, giving your experience 
and I know you don't have a crystal ball, but you know what's going to happen in the next few years. Sure, sure. Yeah, well, you know, for, first of all, I think the industry really has excelled in the last year and a half to you know put products on the market and vaccines on the market that you know has has been an extraordinary you know effort and. Uh, you know, it's an industry that has not always been seen uh, by the public and by, um, you know, the world as um, in, in the light it should be seen in, I think. And I think they've really helped people understand, you know, the, the fact that we've been such a contributor to the solution around uh, COVID-19 and the pandemic. Uh, I think people have seen, have taken a renewed interest in, in the industry and, and, you know, see how important it is. Um, you know, I, I, I see some, some different things happen around lo location, right? I think, you know, it's always been interesting to me, you know, what a sponsor company, how, how, how uh, close they want to be to their service providers, you know, and some companies are just have a total global outlook. Some companies are, you know, if they're a, startup in San Francisco, they want to deal with a development house that's in San, you know, that's in the Bay Area, you know, so, and I think what, what COVID has done and the inability for people to travel and really put their eyes on things has maybe even um, exaggerated that need to be close a, a little bit, right? So I think, mm -hmm. I think companies that can provide service and, and people and capabilities you know, kind of in the, in the hubs where the sponsor companies are, or, you know, where decision makers are, I think, um, I think that's, you know, that that's kind of grown a little bit. Um, you know, the, um, you know, the inability for us to kind of get on a plane every Monday morning has, has changed a lot. As, as you know, I think we've learned <laughs> how to deal with each other remotely and, you know, a real healthy way, you know, so I don't, I think people will, the learnings from, from this will be that, hey, if we can do something by having a two hour teleconference, let's not all get in a plane and, and fly to Chicago to, to have that discussion. So I think, I think we're going to see a lot more of that. Um, I, you know, the one, one thing that I wish I did have a crystal ball around is really, you know, the, the, re, the regionalization and the amount of, um, kind of localization that, that may come out of this politically. Um, you know, countries have experienced um, shortages and, and risks that they, some of them didn't even know they had by the global nature of supply chains and, and manufacturing. And, um, you know, so here in the U.S. And, and in countries around the world, we've had, you know, quite a bit of, of discussion about, you know, pulling those supply chains in and making them more local. Whether we ever get to a point where companies are really incentivized to make that happen uh, is yet to be seen. But I think, um, I think there's a lot to watch there. No, I think that's a really, really great point to, to end our discussion, actually, and one that, you know, I wish I had an answer for that as well. And it's going to be intriguing in the next few years to see whether that local well, two aspects, whether the travel will come back and whether companies will opt to, you know, look for more regional or local suppliers is going to be fascinating in a, in a post kind of COVID uh, world. And, and Peter, I want to say thank you so much for joining us, especially because 
you know, you, our, our listener might have picked up some background noise there at the end, and Peter's looking after his dog <laughs> in the uh, whilst conducting the interview. So I think you've done a, a terrific job at, at uh, you know, keeping your dog on a leash, literally, I, I suspect, but also just, um, you know, it sounds like a very behaved uh, dog. So thank you so much for, for being on Molecule to Market, Peter. Obviously, we've met before and uh, you're a great guy and I'm, I'm I'm so pleased to see the work that you're doing in the sector and that you've been able to come on and, and share some really terrific insights for our, for our listeners. Well, it's been, been a real pleasure, Ramon, and uh, really I've appreciated getting to know you and I appreciate you uh, putting up with my dog in my office, but uh, it is... Uh, it is my turn to watch them today. So uh, I've spent much more time with, with my dog in the last year than I ever thought I would. Uh, I guess that's a good thing, but sometimes uh, I wonder. Yeah, I know pets pets and children are going to have some uh, serious issues when we start yeah. traveling again. <laughs> the separation anxiety. But uh, well, Peter, thank you so much for your time and, and for being on Molecules Market. Uh, my pleasure. Hi again, thanks so much for tuning in to Molecule to Market. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can find more shows on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. Get in touch with us on our website, moleculetomarketpod.com, and follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter, and we will see you again next week. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital, and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile, and generate leads in life sciences.